This year, uh, God willing, as I've shared with you before, I guess I think about it a lot because at this stage of my life, I tend to look back maybe more than I did when I was younger. I'm in my 35th year here at New Spring, my 42nd year as pastor. And as you can imagine, I'm looking forward to the next years and I want to do a great job for the Lord with the time I have left. But I also, it's a season of looking back on my ministry and there are things that I would like to do differently. And so tonight I want to talk to you about an area that I think I've neglected because if I started my ministry over tonight, I would want to put a lot more focus on this because I I look at what's happening in the Christian community today and I see things that I think are indicative of an absence of this in the Christian life. Um, We have more depression today than we've ever had before. And I understand there are chemical reasons for some of that, but yet at the same time, I have to scratch my head and say, I'm not sure chemistry is the whole answer for this. We have more anxiety than we've ever had before. And once again, I know chemistry is a part of that, but at the same time, I know that our thinking and our way of looking at life has a big bearing on that. So tonight, I just want to speak to you about a correction, and maybe those of you who have listened to me lately have already begun to notice that in my preaching, there's a renewed emphasis on this. I know when I brought a message to you the other day in the Blessed series, and I talked about, it was a sermon, I'm, I'm blessed, so what? And we went into the Psalms, and one of the things that David said was that he would make some noise. And I've challenged us as a congregation to sing and to praise God and to make some noise. We live in an age where there is a great deal of of, uh, artificial sophistication. We're not nearly as sophisticated as a culture as we think we are. But I think because of technology, there is a, a saccharine sophistication in which people are too cool sometimes to let their emotions out. And that's not only, it's not only wrong in the Christian world, but it's also unhealthy. And I've also shared with us the importance about worship in our recent night of worship. So tonight, I will just tell you that if I were starting my ministry over again, if I were 16 years old, and uh, I preached my first sermon, New Year's Eve, 1972, I'm so glad Mary Alice was there. I just met her, and uh, she was in the service that night. I think she was still 14, I was 16, and she heard me preach that night. If I was starting my, my ministry over again, and with the time that I have left, I want to challenge a church, and I don't mean church in the sense of New Spring. God has given me an opportunity to speak really all over the country, and then looking at my schedule for this next year, really in several places around the world, I want to make a focus on this, and I want to start in the church that I've been pleased to pastor. But I think we need to look again in our Christian experience at the importance of singing. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and the 15th verse, Paul says, I will pray with understanding, I will sing with understanding. Now that's really interesting because he indicates that prayer is, singing is on a level with prayer. And I don't think we think that way. I don't mean us particularly, necessarily you and me, but I just think the church at large. I think we think of singing as something that we do when we come to church and there's a band on stage 
and they're singing, and so kind of if I feel it or if I like the song or whatever, then I'll, I'll engage maybe a little bit. Uh, others of us, we sing with the radio or we have favorite artists and we sing with them. All of those things are fine in their places, but I'm not really sure that that's at all what the Christian experience is supposed to be. I mean, it, it can contribute to it, but I don't believe that this is at all the role that God intended singing to be in our lives. Um, concerts are great. Um, listening to music on the radio, singing along with it is wonderful. It can actually be an expression of what I'm talking about tonight. But if you're looking at the pure biblical perspective of singing with understanding, it occurs for us two times in the epistles, once in the book of Colossians chapter 3 and then also in Ephesians chapter 5. And I have both of these verses, I think, for you tonight. The Bible says in Colossians 3.16, as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, with gratitude in your hearts to God. Well, notice that it starts with gratitude. It's exactly as our message was two weeks ago. I'm blessed, so gratitude responds with singing. And notice that there are three categories of songs. And I spend a lot of time talking with our great worship teams here at New Spring. And I got to tell you what. I know I'm prejudiced, but I really believe that God has sent us the greatest worship leaders. And by the way, everybody on our stage is a worship leader, whether it's Austin and Deb, or, but, but Nick and, and Justin and all the, all the instrumentalists, they are bringing their gifts to lead us in worship. And I know that they all feel that way. They may be quiet, they might play in the background, but at the same time, they are here leading in worship. And I just really believe that God has given us and is giving us the, the best worship leaders that I know of. And I know their heart. And I've spent a lot of time talking to them about these three categories. Because in Ephesians chapter 5, we find these same categories. The Bible says that we are singing, making melody to our heart, in our heart with the Lord in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's twice. Psalms hymns, and spiritual songs. Do you know what the difference of the distinction among psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is? As best I understand it, I'll give it to you. Psalms. Those are the psalms that are in Scripture. In fact, many of our worship songs are taken from the psalms. Um, Mary Alice and I were about to finish reading through the Bible in the year, and, and if you use the through-the-year, one-year Bible, uh, you'll read through the book of Psalms more than once. And, and I can't tell you how many times we'll read a psalm, and I'll think, oh, yeah, we sing that in church. And so that's, that is part of what we sing. Uh, and if you read the psalms, you'll see so many songs that the church has been blessed with that are taken from the psalms. Hymns. Hymns are songs that glorify Christ. The word hymn itself means to break through. And I, I think about this a lot. Many times when we are called upon to sing, we may not feel like singing. I mean, there are times like even today, you may have had a rough day. I mean, I had my challenges today. Nothing too bad, but just a lot of stuff. And it is a challenge for me sometimes when I've had a whole lot of things going on just to break through that fog, to break through that haze. And that is 
what hymns do. Hymns break through the haze and they give glory to God. They give glory to Jesus Christ. All, all hell, the power of Jesus' name would be an example of a hymn. I don't know why this one just popped into my head, but if I were to go back to Psalms as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after you, that was one of the first worship, praise and worship songs that we begin to sing back in the 70s. But a hymn would be a song that just glorifies God and breaks through the fog that's in our lives. And by the way, no matter what you're going through, you can always sing praise to God, can't you? You may not be able to sing a song that tells about your own experience at that moment because your own experience may be painful, but you can always sing a song of glory to God, a song that gives praise and glory to him. Spiritual songs is probably the most interesting category to me. It is my personal favorite of the three, although they're all wonderful, and the Bible tells me that I am to sing in all three of these. But spiritual songs are songs that talk about our experience with God. One of the things that I love doing when I work with our worship team is always challenge them, find songs to lead us in that people are aching, the things that people are aching to say to God. Because isn't it true, how many times do we wind up coming in here to church and our band and our team leads us in a song and when you see the lyric, it's like, oh, that was what I was wanting to tell God all along and I just didn't know the words. But now that I'm, now that I'm singing that song, it, it, it is, I mean, you know, God, you will chase me wherever I am. There is nothing that won't stop you from coming after me, which you just sang a few moments ago. That is a spiritual song. It is a song of testimony of what God has done in my life. I'm old school. I grew up, you know, with, with songs that my parents taught me. My favorite song is an old song that probably, probably less than five of you would even know exists, but it's a song that's called No One Ever Cared For Me Like Jesus. And it's an old song, I haven't sung it in church for years, but I sing it when I'm alone with God because that is the truth of my life, that nobody ever cared for me like Jesus. I've been blessed with people that love me, but nobody ever cared for me like Jesus. So that's what we are to do. We are to sing. This is not a suggestion. I've, I've shared this before and I feel comfortable sharing this because this guy is not a member of our church. He is one of the closest friends I have in this city and I love him and he's a blessing to my life. We have a point of disagreement on this issue. Uh, he's a member of another fine church, but we've had conversations and he said, I don't like singing. When I go to church, I just love preaching. If they would just stop the singing and go straight to the sermon, then I would be happy. In fact, he would sometimes sit in his car during the worship service and then go in for the sermon. Now, I got to tell you, he's one of the finest people I know. I just have met people like that. And here's the thing that troubles me sometimes. I think there are people who quietly feel the same way. Now, there are probably people that would say, what I come for is the worship and I go out to my car during the sermon. That's, that's, that's another matter. And I would understand that. But God wants us to experience both these things. Both these things are part of worship. I mean, you go back to the Old Testament, and that is what the people of God did. They sang, and then they, they heard the word of God. The word was spoken into them, and they left different people. Right now, Mary and I are reading through a section of the Psalms called the Songs of Ascent, which means as the people would climb up to go to the temple, they would sing these songs. And, and that's intended to be part of our experience today. When I think about songs of testimony, 
I, I think about Psalm 66, verse 16. If you mark your Bibles, I want to encourage you to mark this verse in your Bible. It's Psalm 66, 16. You can make yourself a note. If you use electronic device, you can just mark this electronically. But Psalm 66, 16 says, come here and listen. And let me tell you what God did for me. I love that verse. You know, if, if you're ever around me very long, and those of, who know me closely will know it won't be long before I'll start telling stories about what God has done in my life. And I love that. I really believe that is the core of witnessing. And witnessing is important because every Christ follower should be sharing her faith or his faith with other people. And sometimes Christians are reluctant to share their faith because it's like, well, I don't want to get into a theological discussion where someone will start asking questions I can't answer. Always remember this. Nobody can question your story. If God has saved you, just tell the story of how God saved you and give them God's word. And that's what this psalm says. It's so wonderful. Come here and listen and let me tell you what God did for me. A few moments ago, I encouraged you to sing with Austin and the band one of the well, most well-known songs of the Christian faith. And that song is Amazing Grace. I believe Amazing Grace may be the greatest at least in my personal feeling, it may be the greatest of the spiritual songs. Because when you sing Amazing Grace, you are singing what God has done in our lives. We didn't write it, but we could have written it. Do you know the story of Amazing Grace? I'm not sure anybody really knows the whole story to this song. Because it's a, it's a story that unfolded over time. But let me just kind of give you the background of Amazing Grace. The core of the song, the lyrics, were written by a guy named John Newton who lived back in the 1700s. If you ever read John Newton's biography, you'll discover that there wasn't a whole lot of faith in his background. His mom was somewhat pious, but she died when John was seven, and he grew up mistreated and abused by his stepmother. And at the age of 11, he joined his dad as an apprentice sailor but he was always getting into trouble. He had a huge rebellious streak that time after time would bring him to the edge of death and land him in the worst places imaginable. And like many people, he'd get in trouble. And then when he would get in trouble, then he would kind of think about God a little bit. But then when the trouble would be over, he would go back into even worse habits that he had been in before. And finally, now I want you to think about this. This is the guy who ultimately would write Amazing Grace. Ultimately, as a young man, it was such a failed experience to try to think about God that after reading a book about atheism with a friend, he declared once and for all that he did not believe in God. He denounced God and all faith in God. He wound up charged with desertion because he stayed too long with his mistress and he wound up being flogged and pressed. That's a term, if you know British history, you know that when sometimes a person was found guilty of a crime, they would be forced to work on a ship as punishment as if they were in prison. In fact, they were in prison. And he talked them into letting him be on a slave trading ship that carried him to West Africa. And while he was there, he became the property of a slave owner who they mistreated him, he and the man and his mistress, so much so that John was running around in rags in West Africa 
finally managed to get on another slave trading ship, but ever the rebel, Newton started writing obscene songs about the captain. And his obscene songs were so popular that the crew started singing them. Now, I want you just to think about that. The man who wrote Amazing Grace when he was an atheist wrote the most body obscene songs. The captain of that slave ship would say that John Newton was the most obscene man he ever knew. He used the worst expressions he had ever heard, which is something for a sailor to say. The captain said he used the worst expressions he had ever heard and he made up new ones. But in March of 1748, the Greyhound Newton ship got into a horrible storm and a sailor who had been standing right where Newton had been standing a minute before was washed out into the ocean, drowned in the storm. The only thing that saved Newton's life was that he literally roped or lashed himself to the mast in that storm. And in that horrible moment, he called out to God, just said, Lord, have mercy on us. And God spared his life. He wasn't saved right then. He still had a struggle because after all the horrible things that he had done and said, he wondered, is there any way that God could forgive him, that he could receive God's mercy? And he tried to do what many people try to do, is he tried to clean up his life without grace. He didn't really change much. He just kind of got rid of the potty mouth. But grace for him just seemed so impossible. But at the age of 30, and realizing what a horrible thing slavery was, he turned his back on it once and for all, and he became a customs agent where he started studying and reading the Bible. And the more he read the Bible, the more he began to see that the grace of God was so wonderful that it would be able to save even the worst of sinners. Not only did he study the Bible, he started studying, not, not in school or anything, but he started studying the kinds of things that preachers study. And it wasn't that he became a preacher, it was that John Newton just had a passion for doing what we read a few moments ago in the Psalms. Remember the Psalm that said, come and listen to me and I will tell you the good things that God has done in my life. John just started going around town and talking to people and telling them about his experiences and what had been true in his life and what God had saved him from. And after hearing a lot of his stories, someone said to him, John, you ought to be a, a pastor. Well, the Church of England had no interest in him at first because he had no classic education and because of his background. But long story short, he did wind up being a pastor, but of a very poor, illiterate, hard scrabble congregation in a place called Olney, England. I want to borrow now from a couple of biographers of John Newton. I want the, the, these guys are Bernard Martin, who wrote in 1950, and John Pollock, who wrote more recently. But I'm going to put together their statements, and here is what these writers say. Olney was a village of about 2,500 residents whose main industry was making lace by hand. The people were mostly illiterate and many of them poor. Newton's preaching was unique in that he shared many of his own experiences from the pulpit. Many clergy preached from a distance, not admitting any temptation or sin. He was involved in his parishioner's life and was much loved, although his writing and delivery were sometimes unpolished. 
but his devotion and conviction were apparent and forceful, and he often said his mission was to break a hard heart and to heal a broken heart. Uh, excuse me, to break a hard heart and to heal a broken heart. Oh, this is too much information. Just wanting us to sing with understanding when we sing this song. A guy by the name of William Cowper joined his church. Um, have you ever heard the expression, God works in mysterious ways? Is one William Cowper wrote that. But John and William began to write songs together. And I didn't know we were going to sing this tonight. But actually, one of the songs that came from these two guys in that little poor church was a song called, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. You just sang it a few moments ago. But on New Year's Day in 1773, John Newton presented a new song to his congregation. And they sang it for the first time. Nobody knows exactly what tune they sang it to because the tune that we know of for Amazing Grace wasn't added until many years later. And you know, the song didn't get a lot of traction in England. But something was happening across the water here in the United States. American Christians at the end of the 18th century had begun to cool off. And I fear that Always. In fact, that will always be the temptation of a Christian is to cool off. You know, to forget how much trouble we were in before God saved us. To forget how much trouble we were in before God answered the prayer. And that was happening collectively across the United States, you know. And there, there was the proliferation of science, so-called, and the proliferation of free thought, so-called. And there was a dim diminishing of passion in the church. And there were Christians who began to pray for something called revival. And by the way, we need to pray for that in America today because the church at large in America is very sick. And Americans begin to pray and to ask God for the power of God in their lives, that he might restore it. And God began to work in churches all over the United States. And Something happened that historians will call the Second Great Awakening, which began about 1800. And what happened in this Great Awakening is that preachers began to preach not high-flown, theologically elite sermons, but they began to preach the Word of God with the power of God. And people began to sing like they meant it. And they prayed as though they desperately needed God. And the power of God came and impacted the United States greatly. In fact, a whole lot of churches today who are doing what God wants churches to do, you can draw a straight line between what's happening in those churches and the Second Great Awakening going back to the beginning of the 19th century here in the United States. And somehow, this little song, written by this ex-slave trader, who was now an opponent of slavery, that had kind of become forgotten in England, became the theme song of the Second Great Awakening. At first, there were only the first three verses. But along came Harriet Beecher Stowe. If that name is familiar to you, you will know Harriet Beecher Stowe as the abolitionist who wrote the great work, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And in Harriet Beecher Stowe's book, she had her character, Tom, sing Newton's three verses in the worst crisis of his life, 
But Harriet Beecher Stowe added a fourth verse that had been passed on from generation to generation orally by the African-American community. It was not originally part of Amazing Grace. It was not part of any song that was on paper. It was just a song that African-Americans had passed on and taught generationally. And isn't it interesting that the man who was a slave trader in Africa wrote a song that the final verse would be given to us, passed down orally by African-Americans who have been slaves. And that fourth verse that Harriet Beecher Stowe added was the verse, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. And then amazing grace was finished as we know it today. I want to one more time challenge us tonight to obey the word of God and to sing with understanding. To sing whether you have a voice that everybody says is beautiful or if you have a voice like mine that you're just, you're just thankful that God lets you sing a melody every once in a while. I'm going to stop and say something right now. Singing is not elective for a Christian. If you have voice to sing, it's not elective. It's not like my friend who says it's not my favorite thing. Singing is not elective for a born-again Christian. I mean, there's a verse of song that says, let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. But children of the heavenly king may sing sing their joys abroad. And when you think about amazing grace, I want you to think about those four verses because the first verse looks back. It is a spiritual song that reflects back on what God has done for us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It is a verse that looks back. Interestingly, when Franklin Roosevelt went to church and he heard Amazing Grace, he said, I do not want to sing that song anymore. And actually, in the church where he attended, they changed a word out of the first verse because he did not like the word wretch. He did not see himself as a wretch. Well, John Newton did. But I mean no disrespect to Franklin Roosevelt. I'm just saying, I really believe that every one of us here who truly understands where we were before grace found us, who we were before Jesus came into our lives, what our future would have been like if we had never met Jesus. I don't think we will have any problem looking back on our lives and saying, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The second verse, it also looks back. And I think sometimes this is a verse I wish we thought about more. You know, sometimes we sing these songs. I grew up in church and I, I sang so many of these songs before I even thought about what they had to say. But the second verse says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." You ever think about that lyric? I mean, here's John Newton. I mean, he's, he's living this awful life. And as he begins to understand the gospel, he recognizes how much trouble he was in. I mean, when you think about Jesus saving us and dying on the cross, he must have been keeping us from something awful to experience that kind of death, correct? 
Grace teaches us. Grace speaks into the heart and life of anyone and says that if we do not have a rescue, then we have a future of great peril. And so twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And then it says, but then grace, my fears relieved. Hmm. I realized how much trouble I was in, but then when I realized the grace of God, I realized I don't have to be afraid anymore. How precious did that grace appear the hour first believed. And then we've already read Harriet Beecher Stowe's verse, when we've been there 10,000 years brought shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. But as I close out tonight, it's verse three that speaks about where we are now. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. I thought about this tonight because if you heard the sermon this last weekend, I shared stories about times in my life when I could have gone out into eternity or remember my family could have died, but I believe God sent his angels to rescue us. And to me, when I think about the third verse of Amazing Grace, I think about that Statement And tonight, I just want to read it to you from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, that says, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. That's in the King James Version. Hitherto is a strange word. It means from where I was to where I am. And is there anyone who can sing that tonight? I mean, I'm not asking us to sing again, but I'm saying, can you look at your life today and say, from where I was to where I am, God has helped me. If you read the rest of that chapter, and maybe you can do that tonight when you go home. I'm out of time this evening. But the people of God in Samuel's day had gotten away from God, and God had allowed them to lose the Ark of the Covenant, but God had brought the Ark back to them. And the people said to Samuel, we need to get right with God. We need to come back to God. And they had this time of sacrificing and celebration. And when the Philistines saw them gather there, the Philistines thought, here's our chance. Let's kill them now. And the people prayed, and God spared them. And that's when Samuel asked them to set up a monument and call it Ebenezer, and that's where the statement comes from, up till now or hitherto, the Lord has helped us. My challenge for us tonight as a church, and it's not that we have to understand the background of every song, but my challenge to us tonight is to make singing part of our lives. Because singing is a joyful expression. And one of the things that I've learned is even if I don't feel joyful, if I will go ahead and praise the Lord, it begins to change the emotional climate of my soul. There's something about singing and praising God that brings joy even if I don't have joy. And the Bible tells us that we as followers of Jesus Christ are to sing and to praise God for his goodness in our lives. Well, I just leave that with you tonight as a message I I wanted you to know if I was starting my ministry over again, I would 
emphasize more singing because God emphasizes it. And may we in these dark days, may we never forget that our God is worthy of praise and he wants us to lift up our voice to give him praise and worship. We are to sing with understanding. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for letting us come to this place tonight. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will stir up within us a spirit of revival that will cause us to want to sing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord. And Father, I pray that you will help us as a church, the great church that you have allowed us to be part of. We pray, God, that singing will never just be a part of our service to get through, but may we recognize the worship service here that involves singing. May we recognize what an opportunity it is to come away from the world that curses your name and that we have the opportunity to lift your name in song and worship and praise. And Father, tonight, we thank you for what you've done in our lives. We thank you that your grace has reached us when we were without hope. And yes, indeed, we were wretches. And yet your grace has brought us into relationship with you. Your grace taught us to fear and then relieved our fears. It gives us the hope and the assurance of heaven as being our everlasting home. And Father, tonight as your people, we praise and worship you for keeping us safe to this place. That you have brought us from where we were to where we are tonight. And we thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.